0: Hello and welcome to We Are History Podcast. I'm Angela Vance.
1: And I'm John O'Farrell. What are we talking about today, Angela?
0: Oh, today, John, I have got Max Bygraves singing in my head as we are talking about tulips. From Amsterdam. Not specifically from Amsterdam, oh, right. but from all across the Dutch Republic of the 17th century. When it's
1: spring um, again, I'll sing oh, again. That's a real pub singer song, me, it?
0: my nan, that song. It really does. She had the Max Bygraves... Album. I played it to Matt the other day, wasn't impressed. Is but that anyway. song
1: about the tulip fever, the first capitalist crisis of the Dutch Golden well, Age?
0: No, <laughs> but it could be, possibly.
1: I, for this, read the worst history book I've ever read.
0: We like to advertise the books Normally we read on this podcast, but there's one that you are yeah, like, because well, so you were with. leading
1: on this, I thought. Uh, You're reading like the big fat proper history book. And I saw a book on Amazon. Sorry, 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 bookshops. You're all closed at the moment. I saw a book and it's like 90 pages on tulip fever. That's great because Angela will do most of the detail. But it's like this self published print, large print thing (laughs) with no page numbers. And it keeps it references, as it said, on the History Channel. That's their source. They watched the
0: History Channel. (laughs) It's terrible. Soon, John will appear in one of those, uh, as they said on We Are History podcast.
1: <laughs> anyway, so you've done a proper research no this like Well, I
0: read a proper text Good. on this. I read a book called Tulipomania by Mike Dash. Mm-hmm. Um Mania is uh, well, we'll come on to what it is, but it's there's not a, an awful lot written about it and quite a lot we'll see has been tall tales and stories Mytholo- that's told about it. Exactly that. Let's start at the very Here beginning. Oh, that's um Here we go. That's a bit sound of music, wasn't it? Right, yeah. John loves it when I go all the way back. Well, I'm gonna start with some tulip Are you a tulip fan, John? I, like
1: I I try to grow things, uh, but the only thing that I succeed is the moss on the side of my car.
0: <laughs> Beautiful it is too. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Everything else I, I cultivate
0: dies, but the moss on the car seems to really, really. We don't, I've never had point. a garden, John. I've never had my own garden. Oh, so tragic. I've got a little got I've got, no got a balcony. balcony, but I just I I've tried growing yeah. stuff on it and I just forget it's there because I'm not trained to so I'm not and I don't like getting flowers. Oh,
1: I get Jackie flowers, I, but she gets all funny about it. I get Jackie flowers. She goes, you can't just take them off the lamppost like that.
0: I don't... <laughs> I don't I'll just put this out there for anyone listening. I'm sorry. I'm really ungrateful, I know, but I don't like getting... A, because I've got hay fever, so they just make me sneeze. And B, yep. it's just a week of watching something die in my living room isn't... <laughs> You're such a Do you know what I mean? And, and then I've just got to deal with a load of corpses. That's the... Bottom line. And no. Oh, anyway, it was a lovely, it was a lovely thought, Matt. <laughs> Matt, once, Matt knows I don't like flowers, he so never. Buy, but he once bought me um, a bunch of pens because he knows I like pens. Oh, okay. So, you know, if oh, you thought, okay. if you thought nice. of buying me flowers, just buy me some pens and I'll be happy. Um, but tulips, I will concede that tulips are very pretty. I like them in gardens where they belong. There are over 150 species with 3,000 different varieties. They are part okay. of the lily family. Did you know that? Alongside no. onions, garlic no, and asparagus. Um yeah. Ooh. The petals are edible. And and it said in the thing I read that they can be used instead of onions in many recipes. I don't think that could be right, can it? That you use uh, well, tulip no, said, instead uh, of
1: onions. I did not know tulips were edible. I've never heard of anyone cooking tulips. No. You hear you hear sort of, you know, lilac wine or, you know, some petals on salads, but not tulips. Well, apparently
0: weird. um tulip breads and tulips were eaten in World War Two by those who couldn't afford other foods. There we are. And um, okay. can even be used to make wine. So there we are. Suddenly I, oh, God. I'm, okay. I'm on board now. <laughs> um, they weren't widely popular until the Netherlands made them popular. So they're a bit like cannabis in that respect. Oh-hoo. And the <laughs> Netherlands still export three billion tulips a year. Wow, yeah. that's amazing. And the name tulip originated from the Persian word delband, meaning turban. That doesn't sound anything like. Right, I read that and I could not make that make
1: sense. It comes, well, it comes from the Persian, Delband, right? Yeah, (laughs) Delband, sounds just like tulip. (laughs) Turban sounds more like tulip.
0: Anyway, I'm just the messenger. Anyway. So, tulips originated in uh, Central Asia. They came from the slopes of the Pamirs or the foothills of the Tian Shan, which is where China and Tibet basically meet Russia and Afghanistan. So, sort of backbone of. Central Asia and a really inhospitable place. By the 11th century, tulips were already venerated in Persia. Uh, There's a a legend of Farhad and Shirin. Farhad was a 6th century Iranian prince who was in love with a maiden named Shirin. And when he was falsely told that she died of a sudden illness, he was overcome with grief, killed himself by hacking at his own body with an axe. Got to be better ways, is not it? Got to be better ways. Um, (laughs) That's romantic, isn't it? Apparently, where each drop of his blood fell onto the barren ground, a scarlet tulip sprang up, a symbol of his perfect and undying love.
1: See, back then, no one tweeted, picture or it didn't happen.
0: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So in the Ottoman Empire, they liked tulips. The garden, the idea of the garden is a very central thing for Muslims. Uh, Their sort of idea of paradise is always a garden. In Christianity, it was always a, a shining city on a hill. But okay. apparently across the um, sort of Arabic world, because of much of its desert, a garden is obviously a heavenly sort ah. of image. They regarded the flower as godlike because apparently in Arabic script, the letters which make up the Turkish word for tulip are the same as those which form the word Allah.
1: It's an an Arabic anagram. It's
0: an Arabic anagram. And that's a tongue twister. (laughs) An an (laughs) Arabic anagram. The tulip also represented the virtue of modesty before God because when it's in full bloom, it bows its head.
1: Or if it's in Angela's house, all the petals fall off and it's a corpse dying on the death.
0: Exactly, exactly. (laughs) And I put it in the bin going, well, thanks for that. (laughs)
1: You know you're supposed to put them in water, Angela. This is probably where you're going, (laughs) well, same same problem
0: with that goldfish I got you. (laughs) (laughs) So... They come from the east. How did they get to Europe? That's what you're asking, isn't it, John? It is, yeah. Well, how did they get to Europe, Angela? Thank you. Well, I can tell you. So the tale goes that in the autumn of 1562 a ship sailed into the harbour of Antwerp. It was all sounding romantic until you say the word Antwerp. Yes. (laughs) It's just such Antwerp. Um, Carrying a cargo of cloth from Istanbul. And somewhere among all the bales of fabrics had got in some tulip bulbs, whether they'd been put there deliberately or they'd just found their way in there, we don't know. And the Flemish merchant who'd ordered the cloth found these tulip bulbs. And he thought, as you would, John... (laughs) That they must be some strange Turkish sort of onion. Oh, they do look a bit oniony. If you Google a picture of a tulip bulb, it does a look bit, a bit oniony. A bit. Right? I mean, I will say, so, Angela. Sorry, carry on. Yeah. What he, what he did, he got these tulip bulbs and did what all of us would do, John, is he roasted and ate them for his supper, <laughs> yeah. seasoned with oil so, and vinegar.
1: All the way through this. It's like, and the tulip bulbs were stolen, and a passing sailor thought it was an onion and sat on a wall and ate it. I mean, apart from anything else, I know what an onion looks like, but who eats onions anyway? Just go, oh, I love (laughs) an onion. I love, I could have a raw onion for my lunch.
0: Well, it's 17th century, John, or 16th century, as this was, maybe, maybe, you know, baker's coffee juice. Maybe. (laughs) And also, I don't know about you, I mean, as a rule, if I don't know what something is, I find the best way to find out is to eat it. What could this be? I'll Um, I'll have it with some vinegar. Exactly. See what happens. Um, Now, the bulbs he didn't eat, he planted in his vegetable patch. He thought, oh, see what happens. Uh, So he popped them next to the cabbages. And thus it was in the spring the following year, 1563, a few of these strange flowers poked their head up. Fantastic. Now, this merchant, who doesn't seem to have a name that I can find anywhere, uh, he had a friend uh, who does have a name called Yoris Rye. And he visited and he spotted these tulips in the merchant's garden. And this Yoris Rye was a bit of a keen botanist. It was a bit of a hobby. Um, so he asked the merchant if he could have them. And he took them and put them in his own garden so he could discuss them with all his horticultural pals. Sounds dinner like parties fun. were a riot at his house. That's a... <laughs> oh,
1: come and look at um, my new flowers.
0: I mean, I said that, but then you come around my house for dinner and we talk about nuclear bunkers. So, well, you know.
1: yeah, yeah.
0: Horses for course, isn't it? I I never came a second time, I'll be honest. (laughs) (laughs) So I never invited you back, John. (laughs) Um, One of his correspondents was a a horticulturist called Clusius. Now, that wasn't his uh, uh, given name. I can't remember his given name, but he was known as Clusius, who had travelled Europe. He spent his whole life travelling Europe looking for rare and unusual flowers. So he was a real specialist in botany, this guy. And Yoris um, told him that this merchant friend of his had got these bulbs and had enjoyed eating them. So clucius decided to study them as foodstuffs. So he got a friend who was an apothecary and got him to preserve the bulbs in sugar and he ate them as sweetmeats. Um, and the outcome was, he said, they were, and I quote, far tastier than orchids. <laughs> so like... now we know. <laughs> nom, nom, so nom. Dear. Um, now they didn't catch on as a food stuff because apparently they were quite bitter although later on uh, in the winter after the second world war apparently the dutch ate them quite a lot because they were uh, in abundance then but we go back to the 16th century where we are now lucius uh, he sent samples of these bulbs to his horticultural friends that he'd met all over europe and in doing so he spread them out a bit you see, So all oh, these right. friends that he'd met while travelling Europe suddenly planting these new bulbs. And so by 1572, there were tulips in Vienna. They were in Frankfurt by 1593. And they reached the south of France by 1598. And bulbs were sent to England as well. We got them as early as 1582. Uh, now here I'm interested. They were, now you're interested. Okay. <laughs> well, here they were grown for medicinal purposes. Um, there was oh, a botanist okay. called John Parkinson. He said they could be mashed in red wine and drunk as a cure for a crick in the neck.
1: Fantastic. I'm just going to prescribe mashed up tulips and wine, Mrs Johnson. (laughs) Get that down at the pharmacy.
0: (laughs) So we've got as far as Antwerp, um, but we are talking about tulip mania that happened in the Netherlands. So let's just hop along. A little bit along yep. to the Netherlands. So we'll talk a little bit about where we are geographically, historically at this time. It, yeah, It We're in the Dutch Golden Age. So yep. it's the start of the Dutch Republic, which is also known as yes. the United Provinces of the Netherlands, which is also what I call my rude bits. Um, <laughs> oh, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> the United Provinces of the
1: Netherlands.
0: <laughs> when I was a kid, I thought
1: Peter Pan lived in the Netherlands. And I heard that. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. Um, in Nether- Netherlands. It ne- the Netherlands, the Netherlands, <laughs> yeah. So, the, so the Netherlands had been a sort of Spanish possession, hadn't they, for hundreds of they years? They had indeed, uh, and, yeah. And then they, then they won their independence through a sort of war, and um, yeah, take us there through the, the Low Countries and what happened from the sort of mid fifteen hundreds. Well, so
0: most of the Low Countries had come under the rule of the Habsburgs. Um, in fifteen sixty eight, the Netherlands. Led by William the First of Orange, not that one, one we not one, not that one, another one. But it must be probably his this one was known as William the Taciturn or William the Silent. This one, and he led the revolt, which <laughs> oh, doesn't sound very taciturn, but there you go. He led the revolt against Philip the Second of Spain um, because of high taxes, persecution of Protestants, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And this started the Eighty Years' War.
1: Right, cool. That's a bit demoralising, isn't it? Going off the Eighty Years' War.
0: Yeah. How long are you going to be oh, waiting for? It's going for to be a love. while love,
1: oh. I tell you.
0: <laughs> You're going to say that every time. You said that for the 100 years, We've got years war. Years You're war. going to say it in a little bit when we talk about the 30 years. 7 years. War. Seven, this is John's cut. 7 years war. Oh well, okay. Oh, not, not so bad. <laughs> Um, So 1579, a number of the northern provinces of the Low Countries signed the Union of Utrecht. So they promised to support each other in their defence against the army of Flanders, against the rule of Spain. And this is around the same time that Dutch colonialism began, because the Netherlands was able to swipe a number of the Portuguese and Spanish colonies. And in 1588, the provinces became a confederacy. So
1: we're going to be testing you, listeners. Listeners, if you don't remember what the Union of Utrecht was, (laughs) we'll be sending out (laughs) tweets.
0: (laughs) This is why you're interested in history. <laughs> so what happened then, many of the Protestants in the, that were in the land still ruled by the Habsburgs fled to the Netherlands, and the oh, Catholics okay. that were in the Netherlands fled south to okay. the Habsburg wow. provinces. So part,
1: like partition of India or something?
0: Absolutely, like, yeah. Right. So you have this influx in the Netherlands of Calvinist Protestants, and that's yeah. one of the reasons that's given, actually, for the... Dutch golden age which then happens um, is because these Calvinist Protestants all flooded in and brought with them their Protestant work ethic and also
1: a certain amount of political freedom that they had Mm. which allowed them to be entrepreneurs much like the Industrial Revolution happening in England it's because of political freedoms freedom of movement And freedom of trade, which is all part of the Protestant thing.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And there were lots of the the conditions were just really ripe for the Dutch to have a golden age here. They had a supply of cheap energy from windmills and peat, uh, which was transported to um, cities by canal. They had wind powered sawmills so they could build a massive fleet of ships for worldwide trading. So suddenly the Dutch were able to compete with the Portuguese and the Spanish on the worldwide trading stage in 1602 the Dutch East India Company was founded which was said to be the first ever multinational corporation and was wow. funded by shares that established the first modern stock exchange
1: so that's why I think this is interesting you've got the beginnings of sort of modern capitalism here mm. with stock exchanges and multinationals and of course the first sort of recorded boom and bust which is what we're sort of drawn to with these tulips
0: absolutely so,
1: uh, yeah it's interesting
0: They were the world's largest commercial enterprise of the 17th century, the Dutch East India Company. Uh, They imported spices in bulk and they bought huge profits because there was such a risk uh, and demand for them, but such a risk in... Getting them that they could command really high prices.
1: Yeah, a friend of mine wrote a book called Nathaniel's Nutmeg, and uh, Giles Milton. I don't know if you've ever read that one, no. but he wrote a whole book about the Dutch East India Company and the nutmeg that became this uh, really treasured spice. And it ended up swapping Manhattan for this island. And that's how, that's how oh, wow. Is that how it's founded? It's a fascinating story.
0: Or well, maybe that's another episode. Could be a read. Yeah. Nathaniel's
1: Nutmeg by Giles Milton. He'll thank me for the plug. Anyway, sorry, <laughs> do carry on. Hello,
0: Giles, if you're listening. <laughs> to finance this growing trade in the region, they established the Bank of Amsterdam. Uh, which was said to be the first true central bank. Their main source of wealth in the Dutch Republic was trade with the Baltic states and Poland. They bought and stockpiled grain and wood. So when other countries, such as Spain, were having a poor harvest, the Dutch didn't suffer because they'd stockpiled grain and they'd prepared. And their location helped. They were midway between the Bay of Biscay and the Baltic. Um so Seville and Lisbon and the Baltic ports were too far apart for direct trade. So the Dutch was a good go-between. Right. So they carried salt, wine, cloth, later silver spices and colonial products eastward, while bringing the Baltic grains, fish and naval stores to the west. So they right. okay. were a so go-between for both ways.
1: Yeah.
0: In the Dutch Republic, social status largely determined by income. Um, OK,
1: so not so much aristocracy like in sort of no. the Spanish or French monarchies and... No, no they, they, it. This,
0: it was the start of a sort of, uh, well, like you say, of a capitalist society, really. The yeah, the landed yeah. nobility had relatively little importance um, since they mostly lived in underdeveloped inland provinces. So it's the urban merchant class that dominated in Dutch society, uh, more so than the clergy, especially since the Catholics have buggered off. Right. And around this time, literature and the arts and the sciences all started to flourish and because of its climate of intellectual tolerance, the Dutch Republic they attracted scientists and thinkers from all over Europe, uh, in particular at the renowned University of Leiden, which became a little gathering place for intellectuals.
1: And stag parties. Let's go on stag too. parties that's, that's, to go to get get stoned in the red light district.
0: <laughs> that's right. Um, now, do you remember Clutius We talked about before the yeah, yeah, multiculturalist way back. Yeah, yeah. who'd travel um, yeah. over Europe towards the end of the uh, 16th century, 1592. He was offered a post in the medical faculty at the University of Leiden, right, and he arrived right. there in 1593. And he brought with him all his precious plants. Uh, including ah, his. What's in
1: there? What's in his Including, bag could you
0: imagine, his valuable collection of tulip bulbs. Uh, now, right now we're getting to it. He was given the job there. He was asked to establish a Hortus Academicus. Academicus. Okay. And he, he said,
1: What's that? What the hell's that? He I said, What's that? And they said it? it's a
0: botanical <laughs> garden. Um, ah. Apparently there was one at the University of Pisa and they wanted one in Leiden. Right. So he created this botanical garden, and when it was complete, it covered a third of an acre and was divided into four sections, each of which contained about 350 individual I can't speak individual beds. Allotments. lot just got bed. loads of allotments. allotments yeah. <laughs> uh, so Clucius sold. Oh, fuck, He sowed Clucius. Clucius. Remember him? Clucius, yeah. Clucius, <sighs> he sowed. <laughs> say sowed. And to say sowed. 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 He sowed. He sowed.
1: So- no, he, he sowed.
0: Clucius Pl- Pl- planted. Clu- right, well done. Clu- oh, planted. You mean he
1: these. sowed?
0: <laughs> I've lost my mind. Uh, Clucius brought with him from Frankfurt his collection of tulip bulbs and he sowed them in his own garden where he cultivated them and continued to study them until he died in 1609. And he was the first to really classify and write about tulips. He was principally impressed with the ease of how new varieties could be produced. Uh, no other flower he observed, except the poppy was as diverse. Yeah. So that brings us on to the variations in tulips. Here we go. This is important. Put stuff. your seatbelts on. I know, it's a roller coaster. <laughs> um, so at this time when Clucius was about in the United Provinces the tulips were a mixture of wildflowers and cultivars that, that had been bred together. So they were these cultivars were produced by sort of chance crossings of two different botanical tulips. Yeah. Now this book I read went really into detail about all this and I'll well, level no, with you, God. John. It just wasn't <laughs> that interesting. So um no. you know I'm sure if you're into flowers then by all means, you know, read the book. Really fascinating, I'm sure. Yeah, uh, yeah. But it made me want to kill myself. So, <laughs> um, Dutch tulips, they've been produced by crossing flowers uh, which have come to the provinces from all points east, right, from Crete to Kurdistan. Right. That's why there was so much variety in these tulips in the Netherlands. So, obviously, for people buying these flowers the important things are the colors and the patterns right and what happened yeah. is on some of these tulips developed these beautiful little lines in them they called them breaks they became the valuable okay. ones they were the ones the collectors really wanted but nobody could work out how it was happening they tried all sorts of alchemy to they tried putting pigeon dung on them they tried cutting two bulbs in half and putting them together and things um, now it turns out they didn't discover this until the 19th century turns out that the thing that was causing these breaks, these beautiful patterns in the tulips, was actually a virus. Um, okay. So, But they, did, they didn't know that until the 19th century. So at the time, in the 17th century, these diseased tulips became the most prized ones.
1: And they tried to make them happen by putting pigeon dung on it. Yeah, why not? I've got, I've got plenty of pigeon dung at my house if anyone wants some. I've got a skylight right underneath the TV aerial. It's got, it's
0: got <laughs> Thank God you said that. It. I thought for a minute you were just like, I've been hoarding it for years. No. So if anyone wants to buy some.
1: No. Okay. I mean, as I'm cleaning the skylight, they're crapping down on it. It's like, <laughs> anyone, come around here if you want pigeon dung.
0: So you've got all these beautiful different hybrid varieties and the Dutch are giving them beautiful names. Most of them sort of militaristic or naval names like Admiral of Admirals or General of Generals. And these varieties were much admired and Clusius had collected them all in his garden and they were so much admired that he kept getting robbed. He was plagued by thefts of these tulip bulbs. These
1: hardened Dutch criminals, this is the big one, lads. We're armed, we're dangerous, we're (laughs) going to get a load of tulip bulbs.
0: Well, poor <laughs> Lucius was so upset by it, he basically went, I'm I sod it, I'm giving up gardening. They're just going to keep robbing my stuff. And so uh, he divided the tulips between his friends. Well, he divided all his flowers between his friends. But what did happen from his bulbs being nicked is that it spread the tulips across the right. Republic. By 1630, there are yeah. professional growers of tulips in all regions of the Dutch Republic. Tulip farming was attractive to the the both the um, people who lived in the Dutch Republic, but also to Protestant immigrants that have been coming in from the south because it's very easy to set up growing yeah. tulips. They didn't need decent soil. They could grow in sandy, poor soil. You just needed a small pot of land and some tulip seeds or bulbs. Um, and right. the bulb growers, importantly, didn't have to join guilds. Now in the Dutch Republic at this time, if you were a tradesperson, you had to belong to the guild, which was expensive. You had to pay your membership dues and they controlled the trades and professions. But if you grew tulips, you didn't have to join a guild. So individual growers became wealthy. And in fact, there was one dealer in Harlem, Jan van Dam, who I like to think is a distant relative of Jean-Claude, probably isn't. Uh, He died in 1643 and he left an estate consisting primarily of tulip bulbs, which was valued at 42,000 guilders. Wow.
1: For people listening, if they don't know what that is, just to make uh, clear on the monetary value, 42,000 Dutch guilders is about 33,000 Venetian
0: ducats. That's right, John. Yeah. (laughs) So... uh, Let's just say that it's a fortune that ranked him alongside many wealthy merchants who'd made their money right. in the rich trades, the spices, and right. everything else. Yeah. I think we should take a little break here, John. That's a good idea. Uh, go and roast uh, some bulbs for my lunch. Some, some <laughs>
1: roasted tulip bulbs for lunch, and uh, and we'll come back and see. Does it? I, I bet you it starts to go crazy. Do you reckon? I bet you that. I reckon it might. Okay. It's, this, it's going to be some sort of mania. We'll see you after the break. Hello and welcome back to part two and we're talking about tulip mania in 17th century Holland. Angela, we've got to the point where people start to spend I'm, a lot I'm of money on these tulips.
0: Just going to stop you, John, because uh, yep. one of my best friends and bridesmaids to be is Dutch and she will tell you off for calling it Holland. It's the Netherlands. Ooh, okay. Just, just right. in case Sophie's I'm, listening because I, I, I'll get it in the ear otherwise.
1: Um, (laughs) Okay, sorry, sorry, Sophie.
0: So um, we've got these growers of tulips in the Dutch Republic getting wealthy. And one of the lovely things about this time, I think, were the tulip books that I read about. It was a tradition of the bulb craze. And they were these beautiful, richly illustrated sort of catalogues, really, I suppose. Yeah. uh, Called tulip books. They'd be up to 500 pages long. Each grower would produce their own tulip books and they were beautifully painted pictures of the tulips uh, accompanied by their name. Very rarely the price because they're a bit like antique dealers today. They prefer to price their bulbs by assessing how rich the person asking was. If you
1: have to ask, you can't afford it.
0: Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And the artists who illustrated these books were eminent painters of the time uh, in the region and but were really badly paid for their paintings just uh, they earned only a handful of stivers which i guess is they're Sorry. only paid in stivers only in paid
1: i know so oh, God, our listeners are shocked i bet St- they stivers, are stivers not guilders. it's outrageous not i will say that these illustrations are they're my favorite thing about this whole subject look researching mm. it they're amazing these paintings and they, they now to me seem to have enormous value
0: yeah. in sort of
1: 17th century paintings of tulips whereas the actual tulips themselves about which everyone was going so crazy I yeah. say sort of transient, and uh, you know, as you say, a tulip dies and goes. Yeah, but Yeah, paintings the on still exist.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Thank you,
1: painters. Thank you. But artists. they
0: were they were paid <laughs> bugger all, the painters, and were treated yeah. like shit by all accounts. Yeah. So, yeah. um, it's always the, artists who always the artist who suffers. Always the artist who suffers, like the Edinburgh Fringe. So, one of the most desired tulips was called the Semper Augustus, okay. um, and it was very rare. Um, It was practically never actually traded, but it's the one that's talked about and held up as a sign of tulip mania. And really, this is the beginning of tulip mania with this particular bulb that everybody wanted. The earliest mentions of it are from 1620s. But by 1624, there were no more than a dozen examples in existence. And all of them were in the hands of an anonymous man. He was rumoured to live in Amsterdam, but nobody knew who he was.
1: He was Tulip Banksy. <laughs> yeah,
0: Tulip Banksy, quite. Uh, and throughout the 1620s, through brokers, he was bombarded with ever more extravagant offers for a single bulb of this Semper Augustus. Uh, in 1623, the sum of 12,000 guilders wasn't enough to procure 10 bulbs That's from That's amazing. Him. Now, 12,000, let's just say a, a working family would live on 300 guilders a year. So wow. 12,000 is a lot of money. Um, yeah. yeah. But he kept rejecting them, kept rejecting In the end, he did sell one of the bulbs and eventually this Semper Augustus did go on to be spread about a bit. But it gives right. an idea of this mania, that these things that yeah. were collector's items that were really in demand. Now, they were in demand not by the likes of your I, John, not by the normal people. These were okay. collectors. They were like art collectors. OK. They were, they were connoisseurs. Thank
1: you for putting me down as a normal person, Angela. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Don't want you to get ahead of yourself, John. In the rest of Europe connoisseurs, art collectors were generally aristocrats but in the Dutch Republic the connoisseurs, they were members of this new ruling class of the Republic. Um, They were rich and influential private citizens and they were known as regents. Now the city's regents they typically included sort of well-to-do second or third generation businessmen, maybe some lawyers maybe a doctor or two. But as a rule these people, they made their money they made their wealth by investing in bonds and foreign trade. So they weren't busy day-to-day. They weren't... They had time right, on so their was, hands,
1: these people. And suddenly, this an interesting new thing to invest in came exactly. up. Exactly.
0: So they were the people who ran the town councils. They kept themselves busy locally, you know, but they had this time right. on their hands and they were the connoisseurs. They were the people buying these expensive tulip bulbs because they became a fashionable thing amongst the regents to do there were a few merchants as well that were connoisseurs they had less time obviously because they were actually busy merchanting right that is a verb that is a verb listening. Uh, anything can be a verb if you try hard enough i find the merchants in in the dutch republic of course were way better off than those in the rest of europe so they had a bit of money right. as well because the trade was so yeah. good at the time now as the supply of these bulbs steadily increased the expensive bulbs Yep. What happened was the connoisseurs wanted finer and rarer tulips. So the farmers were left with this sort of excess of the more day-to-day tulips, the, the less rare ones. Right? So they had this bulk rare. of stock that was... Because you couldn't just grow the rare ones. You didn't you know, yeah, you quite, they would have rare, that much would they? control over yeah. the variation. They solved this problem by identifying a new market, and the new market were tradespeople and workers of the Dutch Republic. So these were the people who, they were known as artisans. So oh, you're yeah. talking about sort of tradespeople. That, John, oh, okay. you've heard the word earth artisan. You live in Clapham, yeah, you look up there. Bloody,
1: with their bloody bread. What's, what's, what sort <laughs> of bread did you get, Mum? I got artisan
0: bread again. <laughs>
1: you want coffee? Is it artisan coffee?
0: Yeah. I think what's important is in, <laughs> so we're in the golden age in the Dutch Republic. But yeah. of course, that doesn't mean that everybody in the Dutch Republic was wealthy, As right? always, as always. As yeah, it's, always. It's
1: like the swinging so, 60s. It's like everyone thinks everyone was in Carnaby Street. Most of us were still working down mines and in factories, you know. It's exactly. Like, it's always exactly. the people,
0: yeah. Yeah. So, and, and actually on paper, that you know, in the Dutch Republic, the land wasn't fertile. The southern territories were still in ruins from the war. The yeah. north was covered in peat bogs. Like all the wealth came from external the ports, sources, the ports, right? The yeah. Exactly. So it didn't look like a wealthy country. In fact, well, there was an English writer who described it as a universal quagmire, the buttock of the world. <laughs> very, very
1: early trip advisor there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Farmers were doing all right because there was plenty of demand for food in the Republic and also the Holy Roman Empire. The Thirty Years' War had ravaged their oh, local agriculture. So here a, we go, John. Go on, do I'm looking joke. for
1: a joke. If there a joke about the Thirty Years' <laughs> War, I can't think of one.
0: <laughs> so they were, farmers were able to export to other countries. Um, but for the ordinary workers who lived in the towns, your weavers, your market traders, your carpenters, your cobblers, uh, yeah. Your artisans, as they were known, things weren't quite as rosy. Now, having said that, they were still better off than most of Europe. They had twice as much as um, their equivalents in other countries, but taxes were high, and, prices yeah. for goods were high. You know, they of didn't it have any artisan, artisan
1: bread. It's going to be more expensive. If it's artisan <laughs> bread.
0: <laughs> exactly right. And they lived in these cramped houses. They worked for long hours. Fourteen-hour days were normal. They were paid yeah. by the hour. They earned a guilder a day or less. Um, you know you needed 280 guilders a year for a family just to survive right we mentioned earlier about the guilds so even if you were an artisan who had a trade you weren't better off because you were expected to pay these high dues right. to the guilds and they had to cover the cost of banquets and things held throughout the year wow. Um so you got to a situation where people were finding it hard to progress to being master craftsmen because they couldn't afford to and then master craftsmen couldn't afford to take on apprentices um, so it was quite a tough existence and they worked six days a week because one of the downsides of the Reformation was all the Catholics buggered off and took with them their saints days.
1: So all those days off you used to have for uh, Michaelmas or whatever. It was all like, yeah. oh no, that's popery. You can't have a day off. Exactly. Of it's like they abolished exactly. Christmas, didn't they? The Puritans abolished Christmas. It's like, I, I, was, <laughs> I didn't that's get right. you anything this year, dear, because oh, it's, uh, it's evil and satanic have for Christmas. <laughs> That's my excuse.
0: One thing the Dutch did believe in, and this was said to be a national characteristic of the Dutch, was social mobility, which was said to be quite different at this time for the rest of Europe, where in France, for example, if you were a peasant, you knew you were going to be a peasant probably forever. Right. But in the United Provinces, they felt that you could rise in the ranks and, and they saw it happening. You know, an artisan could invest a bit of money into um, a ship that was setting off to trade in the Baltic, reinvest the profit and work their way up and eventually maybe become a ship owner or something. So there was suddenly this sort of route out of poverty. So the tulip growers recognised that these artisan class had a bit of a taste for social mobility. So they identified them as a market to sell these excess bulbs to. And the artisans themselves saw this as a way of making money. Saw this as an investment opportunity that they could afford to partake in.
1: Expensive flowers. Exactly. So from
0: the 1630s, there was this new kind of buyer and all they wanted to do was make money. They weren't connoisseurs they weren't interested in flowers and they called themselves florists dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. now as someone who's planning a wedding i can tell you that florists today are still mostly interested in money
1: yes um, but they're a new force now a new force in european history are the florists absolutely. i think we hear too much don't we in history not enough about the florists you have got we always hear about you know the generals and the the soldiers You never hear the florists of the Third Reich, do you, really?
0: (laughs) (laughs) We're here to put that right,
1: John. Yeah, tonight on the History Channel, (laughs) the florists of the Third Reich.
0: (laughs) Now, you can see why this was attractive, right? That You just take this bulb, convert it into cash without having to do all that much. Um, And they were getting in on the act, remember, when bulbs were already trading for quite high prices. Yeah. because in 1634, there was a large number of new varieties introduced. So the older varieties are multiplied to a point where yeah. there were so many available, it drove the prices down.
1: It's a get-rich-quick scheme, isn't it? Really? Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Absolutely, yeah. Towards 1635, they start to see a profit from their small investments, yeah. these florists. And they start to reinvest and the word spread and more and more artisans started making small investments and then the investments were getting larger, especially weavers. Weavers got in on it because they had looms that they could pawn so they could get capital. Now, there's lots of theories as to how things got out of hand uh, at this point. One of which is, um, it was often commented by outsiders that the Dutch Republic or the citizens of the Dutch Republic were renowned for two things. One was the urge to save, which is something that, you know, in other countries, people of that class just weren't able to do, didn't yeah. have the means to do. The Dutch Republic, the people of, in society there had this horror of living outside their means. So they would save because mm. they had comparative wealth, they could. The other thing, which sounds contradictory, but they were also famous for their urge to gamble. Okay. <laughs> there was a businessman, a Dutch businessman uh, called Willem Usselinks, and he said no Dutchman would put his money into an old sock when he could use it to make more money. Right.
1: So that was their savings, so, was old socks, was it? Yeah. <laughs> so that was a primitive banking system.
0: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, and, and uh, like lotteries were oh, right. fashionable at this time as well. So they would save money, but they would also reinvest it or gamble it. So these artisans looked at tulip trading, saw it as a safe bet. And this is the beginning then of tulip mania. Okay. There's a place in a place called Horn, which is a port in the Northern provinces. And this is marked as the place where the mania began because there's a house, um, quite a substantial sized house in yeah. Horn. And it has three tulips carved into the stone to mark the spot. And oh, okay. that's where in the summer of 1633, that house was sold for three rare tulips.
1: Oh, it's incredible that a uh, three tulips was equivalent to the price of a house. Uh, it just shows you the, yeah. the cost of the cost of tulips, and they started to go up. Did not they?
0: Absolutely. So the prices of the most favoured varieties they began to rise in sixteen thirty four until by the winter of I put there nineteen thirty six. That's not right. No, I think it's... <laughs> until the winter of sixteen thirty six, the value of sun bulbs were doubling within a week. Wow. So th- these, it's going out of control, the, yeah. the price. You, you're talking about single bulbs changing hands for twice a, an annual salary of one of these artisan workers. So you can yes. see why they wanted to get in on this.
1: And what we're talking about is a little bit of... We're not even talking about something that, you know, we're talking about a little bulb in your hand... It's, it's yep. such a small thing. It's such a sort of insignificant thing, isn't it? Really?
0: Absolutely. That's and there's so much risk inherent in it as well because you couldn't guarantee what that bulb. You were would buying blind, become. weren't you?
1: It's like absolutely.
0: Uh, they they took it as a, a volatile product, so it wasn't like buying timber, timbers, timber. You, you can right? see it, yeah. You can see it, and you you ask for this sort of timber, and that's yeah. what you get. Whereas with these bulbs, there was an element of risk. Of yeah, risk
1: might be a stinging nettle or something.
0: Or, or an onion, maybe. (laughs) Maybe It was an onion, yeah. (laughs) The mania climaxed in two months, which was December nineteen thirty six and January nineteen thirty seven, as all these Dutch people are rushing to invest whatever they had. They were selling their wares, they were mortgaging, they were doing anything they could to to buy these because they thought they could get rich
1: without, you know. With just a, with that working, but just, just as an easy way to get rich, and that nothing can possibly go wrong.
0: Yeah, that's the idea. What really. could possibly go wrong? <laughs> yeah. um, there were lots of stories at the time. Um, there was a story of a rich Amsterdam merchant who had a rare Rosen bulb, okay. and uh, he put it down somewhere. Because when you've got something rare, John, what you do is you, <laughs> you just leave it in the put it down somewhere. Yeah. And um, he turned away, and when he looked back, it had gone. And know. it turned out that a sailor who'd been in the East Indies and wasn't aware of all this tulip nonsense, had picked it up, uh, he'd taken it away. Now, the merchant tracked down this sailor. What do you think the sailor had done with this bulb, John? Did he sit on a wall and eat it? Of course, he was eating it. <laughs> of course, he was eating it. And the merchant had the sailor thrown in prison. Wow. Uh, there was an English visitor to a wealthy merchant who found a bulb in his host's conservatory and he took to it with his pocket knife to see what it was turned out to be an Admiral van der Eyck worth 4,000 guilders, oh, uh, and so the Englishman was hauled before a magistrate. Now, there are lots of stories like this. According to recent researchers... All a lot of nonsense.
1: I know. That's what's the other thing we should say about this is it's sort of used as this great myth of people kill themselves and everyone was jumping into the the canal, jumping off the windmills with their clogs on. But but it's all been a bit exaggerated, isn't it?
0: Yeah. Well, this is all down to it's worth a little mention here of a man called Charles Mackay. Charles Mackay was a Scottish journalist. And in Ah. 1841, he wrote a book called Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. Right. Um, he wrote in quite a sort of sensationalist journalistic style. And he told all these stories that he'd yeah. found that had happened in tulip mania. And until the 1980s, this was the text that, right. that, that that's what we knew about tulip mania was from this text. But as it turns out, with further research later on, the stories he told in that text were actually based on pamphlets that were written at the time but they were satirical pamphlets at the time. Oh,
1: no. So the satire became the history.
0: The satire became the history. So it's a bit like, John, future historians watching Spitting Image and going, and they were governed by puppets.
1: Well, I'll tell you what, they (laughs) probably were.
0: Yeah, well, hey, hey, am I right? Um, Yeah. So at the time, what had happened, these stories were told, songs were sung, poems were written, basically to warn of the dangers of taking part in this, and it was Mania. also
1: jumping ahead a bit here to the boom, to when the boom collapsed. But it was also became a sort of Puritan lesson about greed and mm. about the dangers of getting money without working hard. So that became Absolutely. it suited the government and the, and the powers of be to build up this idea of the sinful. Well, yeah, remember greedy. we've got this
0: Protestant Calvinist vibe going on. So you know these tales of hubris were cautionary tales and yeah. moralistic stories that were being told. They didn't actually reflect what happened at the time, particularly. Um, Interesting little aside about Charles Mackay, the guy who wrote this book in the 1840s, he actually went on to get caught up in the railway bubble himself. Oh, and we uh, we, we, we did
1: one of those not so long ago.
0: We did, we did. Hello, I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now? The politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now with me, Roz Taylor, Raphael Bear, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez, out now, wherever you get your podcasts. Going back to what actually did happen, as I said before, the circumstances were just ripe for this to happen at yeah. the time. Not only are we in the golden age, so there's a bit more uh, disposable income, there was also a bout of bubonic plague around this time it's, oh, it struck many dutch cities from about 1633 to 1637 in harlem which was one of the main growing cities for tulips one in eight of the population died between august and november 1936 now this is just before the mania really hits its peak so that plague had two impacts really one is it created a shortage of labor which meant Wages went up as employers were competing for manpower and people had more disposable income, the ones that weren't dying. And the second thing is it sort of created an atmosphere of fatalism. Right. You know, when you see one in eight people dying around you, I suppose it's like, fuck it, put all my money in the tulips. I'm going to
1: follow my dream. I'm going to be a florist.
0: (laughs) Exactly that. (laughs) So when you're trading flowers, John, it's quite a seasonal trade, obviously. So most buying up until this point, happened from June to September um, for connoisseurs because they wanted to see the plant in flower before buying it. Right. So they would see the plant in flower, buy them, and then wait till the following year to do the same again. But this new breed of dealers, we've got these new florists, yeah. they don't give a shit about the end result. About, they've got no plans to plant these things, no interesting cultivation. They just want to make money. Yeah. So in autumn of 1635, the bulb trained the bulb trade changed fundamentally right they found a way that they could trade all year round and that is each tulip plant had what they called offsets which they could then sell so these little bulbs that would offset after they'd matured a certain amount okay and they could sell those as well and these they could sell all year round
1: i hadn't quite grasped this is this where the concept of futures come from because they're literally they're going to Sprout in the future, and you're gonna, you know, Mm. uh, you're gonna have a flower in the future. At the moment, it's a bulb, you know.
0: This is it. The florists, because they progressed from trading tulips that were actually in their possession to trading flowers that were still in the ground. Yeah. So the bulbs themselves stopped being the unit of exchange. Right. And instead, it would be a promissory note. So the just a scrap of paper.
1: The, the potential of a flower.
0: <laughs> exactly. It'd just be a scrap of paper which have the details of the flower being sold, the date it would be lifted from the ground and when it would be available to collect, right? Or when Hermes could bring it round and chuck it behind your wheelie bin. Right. <laughs> right. That, so, that, oh, that goes back then as well. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Hermes, ancient Greek, right? So, you know, have <laughs> been <laughs> chucking things behind wheelie bins since ancient times. So buyer's, couldn't now inspect the plant. Right. So there were no guarantees of quality. The florists couldn't even be sure the bulbs that they were selling really belonged to the seller. Uh, sorry, the bulbs they were buying to sell on yeah. belonged to the seller, or even if they really existed. I mean, what could possibly go wrong? Yeah, yeah, John?
1: I can see. What there's could possibly a... go wrong?
0: <laughs> um, this sort of trading was called vintandle, which means trading in the wind. Oh. So what happened? You've got these promissory notes changing hands. Yeah. Right. So these are, this is an exercise in speculation, as you said, in futures. But because the delivery of the actual flowers was months away, yeah. what would then happen was between that time, the notes themselves would be sold on and changed hands. This is subprime mortgages. This is subprime mortgages. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. So these, the flowers themselves became a complete abstraction to yeah. these dealers. It was just this transfer of these dubious claims of ownership between yeah, different A,
1: a promise dealers. of a promise of a promise of a promise,
0: yeah. Exactly. So you yeah. had florists selling tulips they couldn't deliver to buyers who didn't have the cash yeah. to pay for them, basically, mm. which is a futures market. Yeah. So it's a form of speculation where the dealer gambles on the future price of a commodity by promising to pay a specified price on a fixed date in the future. Okay. Now, at this point, this is a novelty. Right, you know, of course. This is now, yeah, futures trading is very... Yeah, but... The first futures market was organised in Amsterdam around 30 years earlier by merchants trading in hemp on the Dutch stock exchange. Are you saying
1: saying the Dutch are all stoners? Yes, I am. (laughs) No, it's really groovy. Come up,
0: let's skin a joint. Now, here's the thing. So you've got a stock exchange in Amsterdam. Yeah. But the appeal is farmers, traders, artisan classes, they couldn't afford the capital to invest on the stock exchange. You know, there were no building societies then. So this was a way that they could make money and make it grow. Now, the stock exchange was a physical place, yeah. but these exchanges were outside of that. OK, this operated on the edge of the economy. Where do they go? In the Dutch Republic. Well, John, sometimes they use churches. But where no. do you think the best deals are done, John? Down the pub. Down the bloody pub. That, Fantastic. of course... You know, the Tulip Traders Stock Exchange was their local pub. This gets more Del Boy by the minute. This does. I've just written on my notes, Delft Boy. I couldn't help it. I'm sorry. Very good. Well,
1: <laughs> a round of applause there. Thank little, you very much. I, z- I've been working
0: for Radio 4 too long. <laughs> a little Zoom applause signal pops up on your screen. <laughs> so, yeah, now, so
1: they're, they're down the pub in the taverns doing these deals. Um, I do remember in the olden days, you'd drive through the city of London back in the 80s, and at lunchtime, the pubs were heaving and they'd all be standing mm. outside. So they were all drunk in the olden days when they were the stock exchange. They'd all have massive lunches and wine and then go yeah. off and trade our futures away when they're. Now, of their course, they're not this. drunk. They're just coped no, up. That's so much better. Um, so
0: much better. Yeah. You <laughs> get more done that way. There are loads of pubs in the United Provinces. Harlem, this city where many of the tulips were grown, had over 200. Right. Pubs in 1636, and their city walls were only the size of Hyde Park, so there were right. quite a lot of pubs. And the more well-to-do inns provided actual dedicated trading rooms for trading bulbs in. So these auctions and trades are happening in pubs throughout the Dutch Republic. The prices are going up and up and up and up and up until February 1637 in Harlem, the heart of this mania. There's an auction in a trading room in a tavern. And suddenly, out of nowhere, no bidders. Wow! Just hit that. And everyone's point. looking at each other side eye. It just happens. Um, it just happens.
1: It just reaches a point, doesn't it? Yeah. I remember when my kids were at primary school, and they're all really into Pokemon. They're trading all these cards and stuff, and they're going. They're all. It's getting madder and madder, and they're all desperate for them. And then the smartest kid in year six, he was just. He just went. I'm selling. And it was just like in the playground, it's suddenly like the, the Pokemon cards suddenly had no value, and everyone's going, I'm selling, I'm selling. And it's like there's a collapse in the value of Pokemon cards. And it's just amazing how the same psychology happens, you know. Just needs it's one amazing. person to the Emperor's new clothes with one child to go, these are worthless. And then suddenly yeah. everyone panics.
0: Well, that's the thing. The value of something is only what people are willing to pay for yeah, it. Yeah.
1: You know, um, and so this so happened in 37. suddenly.
0: This stopped. It's 1637 in February, just out of nowhere. It stopped. And the dealers tried everything to try and stimulate interest. They held mock auctions. um, Okay. But just nothing... It Just the market didn't exist anymore. And nobody really knows what happened. Nobody really knows how much of a build-up there was to this because there weren't daily newspapers at the time. So it's hard to sort of track, you know, did this happen over a week, over a month? You know, did it happen in different cities? The only recorded point is this auction in Harlem where suddenly... That so, was it, and there's virtually no information about prices that were paid for bulbs that spring following But people had
1: committed to bulbs that were still in the ground and things. They owed money, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. yeah, but
0: it seemed that the only people left in the market were the connoisseurs that were there to start with, the ones that wanted to buy the rarest right. tulips. All the other trade just collapsed completely. Wow. It was a collapse that's said to be more rapid and more complete than the Wall Street crash of 1929. Wow. Because um, in 1929, it took two years for share prices to fall to their lowest point. Yeah. Whereas this wiped out in yeah. months or less than that. Yes. I mean, the only um, thing I say is,
1: I've I got the sense from reading this actually a little bit that the, the entire Dutch economy was not dependent on tulips. It was, no. it was It was not the calamity that 1929 was. Oh, or no, no, no. 2008. It, but it was the
0: first example
1: yeah. of this sort of... It was the first, first example
0: modern... of, of bust. But yeah, the economy, yeah. the Dutch economy itself... Yeah. barely touched by it Cause, because cause they weren't trading on the stock exchange. They were not, they were operating on the edges of the actual economy.
1: It's a whole bit in wall street really? where Gordon Gecko points to one of these tulip paintings on his wall. And, uh, you know, uh, he's saying, they see that tulip. That's, that's the first crash. People got greedy for they wanted tulips. And it's all this whole sort of speech is about the tulip mania in, uh, uh in, in the Netherlands in in the sixteen hundreds, but it's nothing it was nothing like as calamitous as nineteen twenty nine or two thousand eighty no. or what we're about to so, embrace or what we're gonna have soon. It, it,
0: well god, let's not think about that. But like I said before, it was largely down to this book that was written in the 1840s and yeah. that that was the myth that went on until really recently. Yeah. Where you know more researchers have done a bit more digging and, and gone, oh hang on a minute. There's no evidence that people were made bankrupt. Now, it doesn't mean they weren't yeah. But there was no evidence that they were. Um, certainly people lost money. Certainly people would have been made destitute, probably. But actual bankruptcies, very little evidence of that.
1: Right. But it's interesting because it's the first.
0: It's interesting because it's the first, you know. And yeah. a lot of the Calvinists in charge at the time just felt these people had got their just desserts. They've been greedy. Yeah. They've been trading drunkenly in taverns. Um, you Sounds know, good to me Yeah absolutely They used to call them Capists um, Which referred to the cap That a jester Or a fool Would wear okay. So they were just seen As these sort of examples Of greedy idiots Really And were held up As a moralistic tale Of hubris um, There was a lot of Like you say A lot of outstanding Contracts to be fulfilled All these futures contracts That were Yeah You know Suddenly they, worthless they it meant, really. It's just an old bit of Bulb in a bit of
1: mud Exactly That's what I was...
0: It always was, mate. It always was. Exactly. You know? So there was a lot of to and fro in, lots of going to court. Um yeah. things that initially tried to be dealt with locally. That proved difficult because at first local courts said, well, we'll just nullify all the contracts. And then people are going, Well, now I've yeah. got no money. You know, and yeah. okay, well, we can't do that. Well, maybe how about they're obliged to pay 10% of the transaction or you know, and right. eventually it all went to the Hague. The Hague looked at it and went, Whoa, that looks a mess. And Sent it back to the local courts
1: to well, deal okay. with
0: because there was just, um,
1: there wasn't government, there wasn't state government in the way that we there understand. There was no it now.
0: regulation of any of this, yeah, you know, yeah, so yeah. it was just hard cheddar, really, for a lot of people. Um, well, it, would have been, it would have been EDAM, there, oh, of course, think, it would hard, there. hard Gouda. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I'll gather over there. And uh, maybe what
1: happened is the artisans said, let's put up the price of our bread. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that takes us to
0: today. That's
1: where we are now. I think this is one of those examples where the myth is more interesting than the truth. The, 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 the myth of a whole country brought to its knees by craze for tulips. The, the, there was yeah. a tulip craze, and they did go up like a thousand percent in one month. I've got it written down here. Yeah. But the idea that everyone was jumping off into canals and off windmills, that's sort of... Uh...
0: The rumours of the mania and those stories were there at the time, you know, and that's what spread yeah. across Europe, actually, were these rumours of this yeah. mad mania. And that's what got the rest of Europe interested in tulips. And okay. actually, it's sort of what saved the growers because there suddenly was an export market, which there hadn't been before. So a lot of the so growers, like of although they'd or... lost out in the mania, they suddenly, this new market opened up. Um And that was tulip mania, really. It was not as wild as people think it was, but it was still pretty mad. Still
1: pretty crazy. And then sort of the following century, we had the South Sea bubble in the UK, which was a similar sort of crash over a, a, a South Sea trading company. Railway mania we talked about, yep. Wall Street 29, subprime mortgages in 2008. Yep. And were, we will never there learn. There were other flower
0: we manias as well. There was in France in 1838, there was a similar mania for dahlias. And in 1985, as late as that, there was a mania in China that almost exactly followed the template of the tulip craze for the red spider lily.
1: So oh, there you go. I have no idea. There you go. <laughs> so so don't put all your money in futures, uh, tulips yep. people.
0: And um, don't Uh, buy flowers for people. Buy them pens.
1: Angela's getting uh, married next year, everybody. (laughs) She'll be walking down in the register office, clutching a lovely bunch of (laughs) barrows. It's going to look lovely. Thank you for bearing with us on this uh, long tale of pens, tulips, Dutch Golden Age, Calvinists. And a little bit of mania. uh, Mad... Human, human greed do uh, send us your uh, suggestions we yeah, we're compiling quite There's a nice little list, list of
0: things to work through now aren't we John There's
1: a long list remember to um, give us uh, five stars on the old uh, on the old reviews and tell us what you like and thank you enjoying. for
0: listening and we'll see you next time we'll see you
1: next time on We Are History thanks for listening
0: bye